0: Well, I have the great pleasure of introducing our guest speaker today. Many of you know that during the week I serve um, at North Central University where I work in the president's office, and so I get to meet lots of really smart people, r- lots of really great people. North Central University is where Jeff and I both went to school and received our ministry training, and so um, we've been just talking about the great amount of resources that we have because of our connection there and the people that we know and who are just phenomenal leaders, and so today we have invited one of those those great teachers to be with us jp o'connor has been at north central for one year Um, i texted your boss and asked him to write something about you so the head of the college of church leadership this is what he said jp moved to minneapolis with his wife and young son from princeton new jersey now he has his phd from princeton theological seminary so y'all better get your bibles out okay and be ready to go Um, where he went to school, and he also taught. He is a New Testament scholar who is a recognized authority on the gospel of Mark and a recipient of few academic awards and recognitions. He also has served in pastoral ministry, and I learned this morning he served in kids' ministry. So a theologian that likes to serve with kids, right? You can't get much better than that. The reason he chose to come to NCU was that he wanted to teach somewhere that he be allowed to pastor students. J.P. and Krista recently had Another brilliant baby. Your baby apparently is brilliant. And he is doing a fabulous job as both a professor and a mentor of students. So, would you guys give a warm welcome to JP O'Connor?
1: Wow, wow. Man, if that's from my boss, should I ask for a raise, Christy? Is that, does that qualify? Wow, that was quite the introduction. Um, I teach Bible at North Central University, and I like to tell people I have the best job in the world because I get to talk with students about Jesus every day of the week, and they pay me to do it. (laughs) So some days I just wake up and pinch myself that I'm living my dream. Uh, I wanted to tell you guys a little more about myself. I have a picture of my family here on the screen. This was our summer in Washington State. There's my beautiful wife, Krista. She's a mental health therapist. She also works at North Central. As you can imagine, she was very busy this last year, the mental health profession. Uh, That's my son, Copeland. Uh, He's two years old, and that's my daughter, Mila. Uh, She's just laughing there. It's so cute. She's seven months old. Uh, Copeland is like a lightning bolt, and uh, Mila is calm as a cucumber. And, you know, as parents, we never play favorites, right? You know? We would never do that, you know, swinking at the parents. My daughter may just never have to pay for a car, college, or a, a home. No, I'm joking. Uh, as uh, Christy said, we're brand new to Minnesota, and this last year, we thought we had accomplished something marvelous by surviving the winter. We thought we were these nomadic travelers that made it through, and. You know, I was out in the driveway shoveling negative 10 degrees, which for you is probably warm. And my neighbor told me, he let me down easy and said, that was an easy winter. It's <laughs> like, okay, welcome to Minnesota. Thank you. Uh, we're originally from Washington State, but I live for about a decade in New Jersey. So uh, we're very excited to be in Minnesota, and we're learning to call it home I'm so honored to be here this morning. Thank you to Pastors Jeff and Christy for having me and for sharing your pulpit with me. I feel like I have a word from the Lord for you today. Uh, So without further ado, let's open up in a word of prayer. God, we need you. It's no surprise, but sometimes we need to voice that every now and again. God, we need you. This morning, I pray that you would open up our hearts and mind as we dive into your word and learn a little bit about what that means. What does it mean to rely on you, to rely on each other? What does it mean to have a friendship with you? God, I pray that you would help us to hear from your Holy Spirit through me as a broken vessel today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of today's sermon is The Friendship. Of God, And I want to talk to you today about a radical, audacious idea that God is your friend. Our central question this morning is what does it mean biblically, theologically, and practically that the God of the universe, the one who put the stars in the heaven and knows the deepest crevices in the ocean, wants to be friends with you? Put succinctly, God wants a friendship with you. Now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, we're coming out of a difficult season. Would you agree? Some were isolated from family and friends. Some had to close down their businesses. Some had to defer college admission for a year. And some, when they got to college, maybe didn't have the experience that they had dreamed about. Many ended relationships Some started new ones. Regardless of where you find yourself this morning, I know that many are asking, is this dreaded season over? Is it finally ended? Can we move on? I think as a society and a country, it's safe to say that we're undergoing a bit of a transition. On the job front, we're having a massive transition in employment Some experts are calling this the great resignation because millions of workers have decided to quit their jobs in search of something new and more fulfilling. The numbers are actually at an all-time high over the span of decades of people quitting their job and starting a new one. Personally, I know a handful of primary and secondary school teachers who after this year decided to call it quits or retire. Does anyone know someone who teaches primary or secondary yet? So my own mother, uh, she teaches first graders. And if you've ever taught first graders, it's kind of like herding cats, you know. But imagine teaching first graders virtually. It's like herding cats, but the cats are now on fire. (laughs) It's just next to impossible. It's, it's, It's dangerous, to be honest. But she managed and she's a stalwart woman and she's gonna continue on. Um, So many are transitioning out of work. On the interpersonal front, people are a little on edge. Did you know that flight attendants are getting in fights with passengers? Did you see this in the news? So, in response to this, several major airlines have decided to ban alcohol consumption on all major airlines. It's not a bad idea, but they're trying to mitigate brawls in flight. (laughs) So now, on your flight from Minneapolis to Chicago, you can see a live MMA fight right there in your seat. (laughs) You know, talk about in-flight entertainment, you know. But we're all carrying this stress, anxiety, frustration, and it's sort of built up over the year, and it's manifesting in every area of our lives. All this pent-up emotion has led into a cycle of frustration and loneliness. Some of us feel misunderstood to our core. Therapists have explained to me that mask wearing actually made it really hard to read and understand people. People felt misunderstood or difficulty connecting. We're experiencing some of this. We are in a transition And as we transition, those seeds that were planted over the course of the last year are coming to full fruition and we're searching for meaning. We're contemplating our work and our futures. Maybe you're trying to rekindle some friendships or relationships that were fractured or maybe not well-tended over the course of the last year. I think all of us can relate to one of those things or another. In the midst of this, God offers you a free and loving gift to embrace you as his friend. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. So, the first place to go uh, for a biblical concept of divine friendship is with the person of Abraham. In Isaiah 41 8, I'll have this on the screen. It says this But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Second Chronicles 20, verse 5 says this, Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our ancestors, are you not God in heaven? Did you not, O God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? James 2:23 in the New Testament says this, Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Now, I want to explore this question, how on earth did Abraham receive such a prestigious title of friend of God? How did this happen? And there are many stories we could turn to to sort of work out that question. But where I want us to go today is in uh, one of my favorite passages in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 15. So if you wouldn't mind opening up your Bibles or your phones to Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Reading here from the NIV. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, when can you give me, or sorry, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my state is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So the scriptures tell us that Abram or Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The word credited here is somewhat like a bank account transaction, okay? So imagine one day you woke up and there was a million dollars in your bank account. If you're anything like me, you would expect a call from the FBI or IRS shortly thereafter, right? Because that just doesn't happen. But in this case, Abraham is credited righteousness, though he has done nothing or next to nothing. All Abraham did was one single thing and he believed. He had faith. And that word faith can be easily misunderstood. It's not something you really do or have to work hard at. It's not easily quantified and measured. God tells us, Or sorry, the scriptures tell us that Abraham was told something absolutely bonkers and he decided to believe it. Full stop. In case you're unaware of the utter insanity of what's happening in Genesis 15, let's do a quick review. Three chapters earlier in Genesis 12, Abraham left his house and home to follow a God he had not previously known. Remember, Abraham didn't know this Yahweh God. (laughs) He was a nobody in Genesis 11, and all of a sudden this God calls out to him, out of the blue, and asks him to leave everything. It wasn't a small request. It was the biggest request you could ask him. Migrate to a new place. Leave everything. So Abraham abandons house and home, and just to make matters worse, the scriptures tell us he's in the middle of a famine. So imagine leaving house and home, you don't really know where you're going, you're just depending on the voice of God, in the middle of a famine, and it's difficult to find any food. Abraham was promised innumerable offspring and land, but up to this point in the story, he has seen nothing. The promise has not yet been fulfilled. He's experienced hardship after hardship. So Genesis 15 rolls around, and God reminds Abraham yet again of his promise. And Abraham takes a deep breath, and he decides to trust in what God says. In the face of famine, poverty, homelessness, Abraham says, Okay, God, I trust you. Now, our central question for today still is on the table. This doesn't exactly answer how Abraham earned the title friend of God. The word for friend that we see in Isaiah 41 and 2 Chronicles 20 is also the word in Hebrew for love. In some contexts, this word friend could be translated as beloved. So Abraham is God's friend, but if you look at the language... He's also God's beloved. And this term, friend or beloved, doesn't really connote emotion as much, strong infatuation. The term actually refers to unwavering commitment. Like a long-lasting marriage, emotional intensity may ebb and flow, but commitment is as steady as the rising sun. And by the time we get to the New Testament in James chapter 2, the word really means the same thing. It can be friend or beloved, one who is loved by God. So I would suggest to you that Abraham is referred to as God's friend, not because of this emotional infatuation or enthrallment, but because of a deep commitment Do you think Abraham woke up every day feeling madly in love with God? Do you think there were days when he was overcome or overwhelmed with despair? Maybe he wanted to throw in the towel. A common misunderstanding that I encounter with the figure of Abraham is a lot of people assume he was this flawless, perfect guy. But the scriptures tell us uh, quite the opposite. Abraham was far from perfect. Uh, I don't mean to air out his laundry, but, you know, we can review. He was called the father of our faith, but it was a bumpy road getting there. Abraham lied on a few occasions, and in one of those lies, he jeopardized his own wife, Sarah, her safety and security. He called Sarah his sister, and she was almost taken advantage of by the king. Abraham, in Genesis 16 and 21, tried to take the promise of God into his own hands. I'm going to get this done myself. And as a consequence of that, a woman named Hagar and her son Ishmael were banished into the wilderness to fend for themselves. Abraham doesn't have a penny in his bank account some days. He's making mistake after mistake, and yet God continues to credit to him righteousness. Perhaps like you or me, Abraham's resume is far from impeccable. And for this reason, we see that perfection is not a prerequisite for God's friendship. Someone needs to hear that again. Perfection is not a prerequisite for divine friendship. The scriptures tell us that Abraham's love-infused trust in the face of great uncertainty And an unpredictable future is what fostered this friendship with God. Does an unpredictable future sound familiar? Facing the unknown, not sure what the next week is going to look like, God's friendship is something we can bank on. Not because of something we do, because he's the kind of friend that continues to fill up our accounts as we need them. Abraham, though the obstacles were enormous, was extended lifeline after lifeline by God. He took care of Sarah when Abraham messed up. He took care of Hagar when Abraham banished her. God continued to not only care for Abraham, but care for the little mistakes he had made along the way. That's a good friend. So to summarize, two things. We learn from Abraham that divine friendship does not expect perfection from us. Abraham made a lot of mistakes. And the second thing is this, divine friendship is built on love and trust in the face of uncertainty, something we can all relate to, love and trust in the face of uncertainty. The other example I want to look at is from the Gospel of John. So, that's Abraham. He shows us a really beautiful illustration of divine friendship. I want us to turn to the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 15, verses 9 uh, through 15. We'll stop at 15. This is a well-loved passage you may have read before, heard it before. It's when Jesus refers to his disciples as his friends reading here from the NIV. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Here we pay attention. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. John chapter 15 appears in the middle of what scholars call the farewell discourses in John. It's essentially the time in Jesus' life when he's saying his final goodbyes to his disciples. It's near the end of his life. We don't have anything like it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. This appears only in the Gospel of John. Now, in the ancient world, a disciple was a student. The word disciple simply means student. And by referring to his disciples as friends, Jesus is doing something pretty radical. It's kind of edgy. You could be a student of a philosopher like the great Socrates. You could be a student of a rabbi like Jesus. But there was always a distinct power dynamic in a student-teacher relationship, right? You're not friends with your teacher. I know this very well. I, I teach. And uh, my rule of thumb is you can't be my friend (laughs) if you're in my class. I mean, imagine if I did that right. Everyone thought they were my best friend. Hey, I don't have to turn in that assignment. I'm good friends with the prof. (laughs) Oh, he's not going to grade me down for that. He's my best friend. (laughs) I can't do that. I would lose control of my classroom. To some extent, I have to maintain law and order in the classroom. People have to turn things in on time and so forth. Jesus calls his disciples his friends. It's a big deal. I want to talk a little bit about what this word friend means because we can bring to it some of our own gloss for the term, what we think it means. But in John's world, when John's writing his gospel, and, and Jesus spoke this, there's a distinct meaning for friendship I want to just show you. So in the ancient world, friendship could have three categories. The first one was you could have a friendship built on pleasure or entertainment, right? So today, this would be the equivalent of, for you online gamers, your Fortnite pals, okay? My nephew plays Fortnite, or whatever, Madden, whatever you might play. These are your gaming buddies. We all have that friend from college, you know, good time, Mike, that just wanted to have a a good time every time you guys got together, right? He's always talking about the good old days. We have friendships today like this. They're friendships built on only entertainment or pleasure. They had this in the ancient world. It was a common type of friend. Another type of friend you could have was what was called a practical friend or a friendship of utility. Now, we also have these today. These are our work friends. Right? These are your buddies when you go into the office, but once you clock out, don't text me. You know, We'll talk about the project at 9 a.m. tomorrow. And friendships of utility, the reason why they're practical is because you can really jive with someone to get a project done, but you're also sort of using each other to meet a deadline. There's some form of utility involved in the college setting. This is your study buddy. right? You might partner up with I was always the kid that was this, you know, smarter kid, maybe taken advantage of. I thought I had, it's, it's, uh, it's how I met my wife, but that's another story. I was often in this category, a friend of utility. I have so many friends. No one's texting me back. So this is a, this is a common friend in the ancient world. We have it today. It's, it's more pragmatic friendship. The third type of friend that was uh, a really important friendship in the ancient world was a friendship of virtue. These were close, intimate friends, not necessarily romantic, but these people, they didn't necessarily have the same job or occupation, but they were built around making each other better people. One philosopher put it like this. Perfect friendship is the friendship of humans who are good and alike in virtue. For those wish well to each other unto the good, and they are good themselves. So in the historical context of John, true friendship, perfect friendship, is where two parties are sharpening each other for the sake of a greater good. This isn't for pleasure. This isn't to meet a project deadline. Each party is deeply committed to each other and to some greater good. Now watch what happens when we think about it theologically. Who is our perfect friend? In this arrangement, according to John, our perfect friend, our true virtuous friend is Jesus. And if we follow these ancient categories for friendship, every time you get together with him, every time you're in his presence, he's making you into a better person, pouring out his goodness all over over you, saturating you in his presence. Now, there's also a challenge here because sometimes we might treat Jesus with one of the other two categories. I've done it myself. It's easy to do. We might think of Jesus as only a friend of pleasure or entertainment. We might only seek him out for a good time or only to lift us up when we're feeling down. We just want a hype man. We also might only think of Jesus for utility, the second category. You know, I only really talk to Jesus when I need him, but I clock out after Sunday. I only really, if we get down to it, use it for what I want, right? We do that often. I've done it myself. The third category, though, the friendship of virtue, the perfect friend, is ultimately how we're designed to relate to God. To quote the book of Proverbs, he is the friend that is closer than any brother. He is our perfect friend, making us better at every encounter with him. Friendship in the Gospel of John reminds us of what we saw with Moses in Genesis 15. Divine friendship is not built on anything other than love and trust. These were the greatest virtues in Jesus' day, arguably the greatest virtues today, love and trust. Moses trusted God. Moses loved God. Jesus trusts his disciples. He loves them deeply, and they him. So to return to our you know, overall question for the day, how do we become friends with God, like Moses, or maybe like the disciples in Jesus? It first begins by receiving that unadulterated, unalloyed love of God into our lives. Remember, the term also means one who is loved, beloved, and certainly God loves us. But the other part of that is it isn't always sunshine and rainbows. For Moses, he was coming out of a famine unlike any other. For Jesus, he knew he was facing a brutal, excruciating death, and the disciples knew they were going to lose him. We, in this room, might be coming out of a difficult, exhausting, overwhelming, uncertain season, Maybe we're searching for new employment or trying to reconnect with a family member. We take a deep breath, like Abraham in Genesis 15, and we say, God, I accept your friendship. I know you have the best for me. I'm not here for pleasure. I'm not here just for entertainment, though that those things come too. They're not excluded. I'm not here just to use you for what you can give me. I just want this friendship, this divine friendship with you. If we go back 2,000 years and we think about the earliest Christians, did you know that one of the reasons people became Christians was friendship? I like to ask people this. Why on earth would you become a Christian in the first century? You know, today it's different. Back then, if you decided to become a Christian, you lost your family, you lost your job, you invited persecution. It wasn't very fun. So why? Why would people decide to change everything, turn their lives upside down to follow this Jesus of Nazareth? Was it to go to heaven? Maybe, but ancient people had plenty of heavens. They had concepts of heaven and the afterlife. They had their heavens. Was it to just avoid hell? Well, again, thinking like an ancient person, many already had concepts of divine punishment, and many were way worse. <laughs> so was that just the reason? Well, perhaps, but another reason why people became Christians was in search of friends. I mean, imagine who was sitting in the pews, the very first pews in the church, We know from 1 Corinthians that there were enslaved people sitting in the pews. We know from the book of Acts there were women, maybe high-standing women, who didn't have a family. We see from from Acts there were foreigners and strangers, even orphans and widows, who decided to join Christianity because they were lonely, isolated, and in need of a loving group of friends. I believe it is the mission of the church to live out the first mission of the church. The church today, we're to live out the same mission of Jesus. And I invite you just to take a moment, look around the room. You know, make some awkward eye contact with someone around you. Okay, look them right dead in the eye and don't blink. (laughs) Now you can blink. Consider those in this room, those who are here Those who are not here, just like the earliest church, you are each other's friends. Did you know we can treat church the same way? Just for entertainment, just for utility. As a parent, childcare is just great, right? It's an hour break from your kids. But church also needs to be thought of in this third way, making each of us into better people. We are each other's friends. God is our friend, but we also experience the friendship of God through each other. God actually designed it this way. As you show me godly friendship, so I can experience friendship with God all the more. I want to close today by talking about a famous theologian uh, by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Has anyone heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer by chance? For those that don't know, this was a guy who became famous for taking a rise against Hitler in the early 1930s in Germany. It was during this time that a large portion of Christians started to compromise with Nazis and Nazism in the early 1930s. Many were okay with it. At the time, a majority of Germany actually identified as Christians. Christianity was a large presence in Germany. And as such, a growing number were more and more comfortable with the idea of Hitler and Nazism, but not Dietrich Bonhoeffer. From the start, he objected. And he would eventually be executed in a concentration camp in 1945 for his involvement in a plot to overthrow Hitler. It's a great story. If you haven't heard it, you should read about it. Among his many works, he wrote a little book in 1938 entitled Life Together. And this is one of those books that really changed my life. It's a really small book, like a dollar on Amazon. It's one of the most influential books for me as an early Christian. And in this book, Bonhoeffer writes it while his world is falling apart. The next year would be the beginning of World War II. His Christian community at large seems to be crumbling and fracturing and at odds with each other, and he's living in this shared housing with other Christians. And so he says, I'm going to write about the church. What is the church? What's the true church? In this book, uh, we get... Bonhoeffer's ideas of what the church should look like, and I want to read to you a small excerpt from his section on the church's ministry, one to another, or as I like to call it, the section on friendship. This is what Bonhoeffer says. We'll have it um, on the screen for you to follow along. The first service that one owes to others in the fellowship consists in listening to them. Just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for brothers and sisters is listening to them. Harder than it sounds. It is God's love for us that he not only give us his word, but also lends us his ear. So it is his work that we do for our brother and sister when we learn to listen. Christians, especially ministers, so often think they must always contribute something when they are in the company of others, that this is the one service they have to render. They forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. Many people are looking for an ear that will listen. They do not find it among Christians because these Christians are talking when they should be listening. But he who can no longer listen to his brother will soon be no longer listening to God. Bonhoeffer outlines for us a sketch of what Christian community should look like, a place rooted in Christ Jesus where friendships are formed. He writes in the middle of rising political tension in a fracturing Christian community. He doesn't use the term friendship here, but he is thinking along the same lines as Moses in Genesis 15 or Jesus in the Gospel of John. We must practice listening to each other. If you're here this morning and you're feeling anxious, frustrated, lost, or lonely, the good news for you today is God wants to be your friend. Like Abraham, like the disciples of Jesus, God desires to call you my friend. How do we become friends of God? Well, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, this invitation is already open and available to you. But if you find yourself in a dry spell, I encourage you to spend time with God's family. Go to the church events, the many that they're offering this summer. As we continue to transition, we have to break these old habits. When our impulse is to withdraw, we should send a text message, reach out, and practice the art of listening to each other. I need you, and you need me. Now, someone might say, well, why can't I hear from God? If God is my friend, as you say, why do I have trouble speaking with him, listening to him, hearing from him? Bonhoeffer would say, those that have trouble hearing from God are having trouble hearing from their neighbors. And the first way to learn to listen to God is to hear it through a friend in the church, hear it through his word. This is hard work. I got my hearing uh, checked this week. And it's actually kind of funny because it's an ongoing feud with my wife. Has anyone had a spousal feud s- settled by a medical doctor? <laughs> the claim is I can't hear and you know, get it checked. I have perfect hearing. I have trouble listening. <laughs> this one's a hard pill to swallow. But what's funny is when I was taking that hearing test, I was thinking, I was on my A game. (laughs) I was listening for every single beep, didn't want to miss a one. You know, I was clicking that thing, you know, like it was a video game. But this is so true about how we should apply our listening skills to each other and to God, right? Really hone in, really listen for that still, small voice because he wants to talk. You. He's probably already talking to you, maybe through someone else in your life right now. Solitude is not a bad thing either. Sometimes we need to get away, go on a walk in nature, you know, take a break from the kids for 30 minutes to really hear from God. Sometimes we need to do that. But I encourage you this week to connect with each other and listen intently for that divine friend because he so desperately wants to connect with you. He's a good friend. but He's also a perfect friend. Let's pray. God, thank you for the friendship you offer us through your son, Jesus. We are ultimately so grateful for your salvation that those of us in this room know we're sinners who have a laundry list of mistakes and you have saved our heart and our soul. But God, may we not forget that you're also our friend. That you don't just leave us a ticket to get to heaven and take off, but you want to go along with us for the ride. (laughs) That you're there every step of the way, even when there's famine and poverty and homelessness. God, that you want to be our friend. God, I pray for us that we would learn to listen. Listen to your still small voice, but also listen to our brothers and sisters even in this room. Maybe it's a hard word. Maybe it's one we've heard before and we're not really interested. Help us to know how to listen like we're taking a hearing test. We love you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.